Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. Good evening, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. This is episode 47, and we're joined by a very special guest. Her name is Medea Benjamin, and you all probably know her as one of the co-founders of Code Pink. And she is the author of 10 books, which <laughs> I did not realize you had written so much. Um, and this latest book that we're going to discuss this evening is entitled War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, which she actually co-authored with Nicholas J.S. Davies. And the preface was also by Katrina Vandenhoven. And um, we have just a lot to discuss. And I want to say thanks for accepting the invitation to the show and um, this was a very well-written book. Excellent. Thank you. I'm glad you uh, think so. It's um, very hard to find the right balance, you know, between condemning Russia and giving the context. And um, uh, some people say that uh, we did a good job and others are not happy with it. But, you know, it can't please everyone. <laughs> yeah. And um that's actually going to get into some stuff I was going to bring up later, just the reception. Um, but I have to tell you just from my personal standpoint, and I'm not even exaggerating this because you're on the show, we've had several analysts on to talk about the Russo-Ukrainian war um, that we know has a history in itself. And um, so we started with the 2014 publication of Flashpoint in Ukraine, how the U.S. drive, US drive for hegemony um, go risk World War III. And this was written in 2014. And some of the authors admitted that there was a different context um, compared to this context with the invasion of last year. But it's interesting. I felt like your book and Nicholas's contribution to the book as well was, uh, it was a pretty objective um, glance. Um, it wasn't pro-Russia anything. It wasn't pro-Ukraine anything. It simply, it documented everything from the Orange Revolution, which is why I really wanted my previous guests to kind of highlight. And I'm not saying that they didn't do a good job of it. They just had different angles into the conflict and they based it on the chapters, um, the, the contributions that they gave to Flashpoint in Ukraine. I think um, this book been published in 2022. There's more of a benefit of the time. We have more information. But I still think it's a lot more concise. I mean, this was written in two months, you said, in the book, which is, which is amazing that you all were able to do this in two months. Well, we'd been working on the issues for a while. We'd been writing articles together, so it wasn't totally new. But we did feel like it was important to get something out quickly. Uh, our hopes were that this was a war that would wind up quickly and the book would be obsolete uh, very soon. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Yes. And so um, before we get into the book, I wanted to um, ask just a few questions, general questions. As far as Cold Pink is concerned, what are some of the latest developments with Cold Pink 
And what are some of the issues that you all are protesting right now that the audience should be aware of? Well, for those who don't know Code Pink, we started out after the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago. And we were uh, at that time saying the invasion of Afghanistan is not a good thing and the invasion of Iraq don't do it. Uh, and <clears throat> of course, we were proven right over the years and those were not popular opinions for a long time. But we were always saying that 9-11 should be treated as a crime against humanity and we should go after the people who committed the crime, bring them to justice, but not invade entire countries. And we also have a mission to try to move our country away from the tremendous emphasis on militarism and the enormous Pentagon budgets that we have towards a peace economy and a foreign policy that is based on respect for international law and for the sovereignty of other countries and not one based on domination. So we've been we've had programs that are uh, ranging from trying to uh, build up support for the Iran nuclear deal, for example, uh, to campaigns against the most expensive, wasteful weapon uh, we have built, the F-35s. Uh, of course, there's also the nuclear weapons and the trillion dollars over the next decade that we're supposed to spend on, quote, modernizing them. And we've been also doing specific things in, in countries, raising money for Afghan women, for refugees in places like Pakistan after the floods, uh, for uh, we work with women's groups in Iran. So in addition to trying to change policy, we also want to be helpful to people who are suffering. Uh, in that vein, it's not just in the Middle East or Asia. We've also been working a lot in Latin America. Uh, we have been appalled that Biden has followed Trump's policies when it comes to places like Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela with these brutal sanctions. So we've been working against those. And uh, so we we have a, a very much of a, a, a global outlook and try to make the connections between the problems of our foreign policy and how they also create problems at home. The violence we commit abroad is reflected in violence and domestic violence in our communities and our police forces. Um, it's uh, uh, reflected in uh, the way that we spend our dollars and not putting money into things like uh, decent health care or free college education, uh, saving environment. So these are been constants around uh, the, the mission of Code Pink for the last 20 years. Yes, and, and how appropriate that you're on the show and speaking to that international community, which we're a part of, and um, our listenership and viewership, a third of my audience is from outside of the United States. And so we're speaking to lots of people. Um, I know the people will appreciate that, just the global outreach. And um, I honestly believe, and people know this from the forum, that a big part of um, the ignorance of the average voter, I think, is because we we don't talk about things outside of the United States. We, we're so stuck in our bubbles. And we don't connect these issues to the global struggle. And all these issues that we're discussing are connected with the international community. So we you can't separate the two. And I think that's the, the last link that I see, especially with a lot of my friends who I think have good intentions, 
but they don't link the domestic with the international. And that's kind of where everything falls apart. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, it's um, very hard to get people in this country interested in international issues. You know, when uh, there are elections coming and people look at the list of what are their priorities, foreign policy is way at the bottom if it even appears. And um, most Americans know little about the world. There's that very ironic and sad saying of Mark Twain that war is the way that Americans learn geography. And I doubt even with the U.S. participation in the war in Ukraine, Americans, most Americans could probably not find it on a map. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're not taught very much about foreign affairs in our schools. And our news programs are just about domestic scandals and so much inter-partisan kind of politics uh, and not on the big issues of what's happening out there in the world. And that's why Americans are very easy to fool and to get uh, into the mindset of thinking that the Russian people are their enemy, the Chinese people are their enemy. You know, there's always some enemy that we are told uh, that we're supposed to hate. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it is easy to convince Americans of that because they don't have uh, a lot of understanding. Most Americans don't get an opportunity to travel outside the United States. Most Americans don't even have passports. And um, so, yeah, people live in a in a bubble. And of course, our bubble is a big one because it's a big country. Uh, but it is also a big, beautiful world out there. And it would be nice if people in this country knew more about it, paid more attention to it, and had more appreciation for the rest of the world, not just mindlessly going on this USA, USA, we're the greatest country in the world. Um, hard to say that if you haven't seen a lot of other countries. <laughs> <laughs> I can't agree more with that. Um, I um, And audience, I do promise we will get into the book some, and, um, and Medea's going to have to guide us a little bit, because like I said, um, I think what has been missing in this fourth, I guess, um, piece into the U Ukraine Russia series on the forum is that timeline of crucial occurrences that have kind of led us to where we are right now. But I did want to get your views on um, because I know you had some involvement in the Rage Against the War Machine demonstration in February and also this latest March on Washington. I think that uh, March the 18th. Something yes. like that, if my timeline now is incorrect. And I just want to know, what was your um, involvement in those two events? And what was the reception, I guess, from the outside towards those two events? Well, you want to get right into the controversy, don't you? <laughs> well, I, I'm not even trying to. <laughs> because that February 19th event was one put on by the Libertarian Party and a group called uh, Movement for a People's Party. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, put on by the traditional leftist groups. And they invited some people to speak who had said some pretty nasty things about issues like gay rights and feminism and um, uh, some other issues that many of us care deeply about. And so when those speakers were invited, even though they were asked to keep the message to just being about Ukraine, uh, there were a lot of folks on the left who said, no, we're not going to join with that. We're not going to sponsor that. We're not going to speak at that. I was invited to speak and I was excited about speaking because I figured 
we'd be reaching a lot of new people that I ordinarily don't get a chance to talk to. And so I immediately said yes. But then my organization, Code Pink, was very upset with me about it and said, no, you can't speak there. Um, you know, these are not the people that we ally with. It will uh, hurt us in building coalitions with groups that we do agree with and care about on a lot of other levels. And so I respected their uh, disagreement and didn't speak, but I did attend. And I must say, I enjoyed myself immensely. I think the speakers all stuck to that agreement of just speaking about Ukraine. Uh, I think it was, uh, while it was an overwhelmingly white crowd, uh, there was diversity in their beliefs. So there were people who would come up and say, oh, Medea, I know you, I disagree with you on X, Y, Z, but boy, you know, this is one thing that we really agree on. And um, I believe that we have to uh, reach out to uh, folks who might not be aligned with us politically on a number of other issues. One, because I think the movement of the left on this issue is way too small. Uh, and two, because if we want to get any momentum in Congress, uh, we're certainly going to have to reach out to the only ones right now who are putting up any kind of a stink about the blank check to Ukraine or calling for negotiations. And that are that's a small group within the Republican Party. And I know that when we worked on uh, the war powers resolution around Yemen, for example, a war that you don't hear much about, but has been raging for the last eight plus years, um, we were called by Bernie Sanders and a, um, a quite conservative Republican Senator Mike Lee into Bernie's office. And around the table, lo and behold, were right-wing groups like the Heritage Foundation and uh, the Cato Institute, which is libertarian, and um, Freedom Works, which is conservative. And we had left-wing groups there like Code Pink. And we all laughed and said, you know, isn't this great that we can be all around the table together because we all want to end this war in Yemen. And so I think, you know, it is possible to do that kind of uh, coalition building around Ukraine if we are open uh, to working with people that are different from us. And, you know, lastly, I want to say about that is that Martin Luther King had this saying that if you're comfortable with your coalition, then your coalition isn't big enough. So I think that's good advice about how to have a bigger tent that you, yeah, you're kind of, oh my goodness, do I really feel okay being in this tent with that person or that group? And in the end, um, you let go of some of those things for this one campaign. It doesn't mean we're going to be besties for for life. It means we're going to work together on this one thing. Uh, so that's my feeling. Yes, um, and I could agree with you more. I, that the the purpose of this forum because we operate everything outside of the Red Blue Alliance. We don't do that stuff on the forum. Um, and if people run for public office, if they're running for DNR. Good luck to you. Um, you can get that publicity from the mainstream media, the people who are, you know, funding all your projects and stuff, because, I mean, they already get the shine. I mean, we're trying to go against the DNR alliance and um, and people may not believe that that's the thing, but it is. I mean, everything is tied. The two party system is inherently tied to um, the war machine and everything else. The corporate media sponsors. I mean, it's the same team. I don't care how you want to justify it. Um, there's no such thing as a progressive Democrat. There's no such thing. It just doesn't exist. I mean, because the actions that have been committed are just too deep and too serious to keep 
um, playing this game of blue and red and stuff. I mean, we really have to do something. Otherwise, the status quo is just going to engulf everyone that's involved. And uh, I think that's, to your point earlier, the quote-unquote the left has become just so um, sucked into the Democratic Party just successfully um, over the years. It just gets smaller and smaller because people buy into um, the personalities and everything, and they just accept, hey, we can't stop these wars. We can't do this. We can do something about it. It's just like people are making decisions not to resist. Um, well, because I remember the Iraq war and stuff, and people, everyone was in the streets during the Iraq war. And now it's like, how did Ukraine all of a sudden become, let's rally behind one side of the conflict and just strand the anti-war sentiment? Yeah, I would say there are progressives when it comes to domestic issues. I mean, Bernie Sanders is certainly a progressive Democrat and a lot of the, the people in the squad and others, you know, there's a progressive caucus that's quite large led by Pramila Jayapal, who is, you know, came from the activist world, just like Cory Bush came from the activist world. And they're progressive. They want to see free college education, universal health care, uh, the uh, funds uh, move from the Pentagon to put into, in, into the green uh, new economy that we need. But when it comes to foreign policy, it's neither their forte, nor is it where they want to stake their mark, because it's dangerous. They will get attacked. Um, there are so many diaspora communities in this country that uh, their issue is so passionate for them. And if you disagree with them, you will incur their wrath. So it might be the Cuban-American community, the Venezuelan-American community, the Indian-American community, the Ukrainian-American community, you know, if you're not taking their position, and oftentimes they are very, very conservative, the ones who left their countries, the one who came here, uh, and, um, you know, you don't, we we talked earlier about how foreign policy is not high up on the uh, the list of the American people, so why bother if you're a politician, even a progressive one, why bother taking on these really difficult issues? I mean, just take the issue of Palestine. Mm, it's yeah. evident that Israel is an aggressor nation that has been repressing the Palestinian people in a horrific way, while the U.S. gives $4 billion every year to Israel. Uh, but there's not a lot of members of Congress who are going to stick their necks out because the uh, largest foreign policy lobby group is called APAC, mm -hmm. and APAC will bite your neck off. APAC will uh, fund your uh, fund a, a challenger to you. APAC will dog you until you're out of Congress. And so you have to make a decision. Am I going to do things that get clean water to my community, or am I going to take on an issue like Palestine that will probably get me kicked out of Congress? So it's very difficult decisions that a lot of these politicians make. Uh, and in the end, it means that uh, the, uh, the, the most hawkish ideas on foreign policy are the ones that rule the day. Mm. Yes, it's an unfortunate reality. Um, and I can't disagree with anything you said. I mean, what you're saying is factual. It's just that um, I just... I just think as far as the system itself, and you're right, there are well-meaning politicians that get in there, and I think they have the right ideas and stuff, but, I mean, once these lobbying campaigns take over and everything else, I mean, it just, I guess that's where my sentiment is at this point, is just um, 
if you're supporting that, I mean, you, it's basically just a support for the system because, I mean, I, I don't think the Bernie Sanders strategy is ever going to work because the money just keeps talking. The money dictates. I mean, you can have 40, 50 Bernie Sanders, but you always have to answer to the establishment, ultimately. Well, if we had 40 or 50 Bernie Sanders, I think we could make some headway. Uh, um, while we're waiting for the revolution to happen, uh, <laughs> um, we have to deal with what we have now. And, um, you know, there are, uh, and I feel, you know, we'll get more into this Ukraine issue, but I feel that we're not doing our job as citizens because the Ukrainian Americans are very organized. They tend to be people who want to see more and more weapons sent to Ukraine. And they uh, are lobbying fast and furiously. When I talk to members of Congress, they say, oh, this, uh, these Ukrainians are out organizing you 10 to 1. We hear way more from them than we hear from people who are calling for peace talks. So you know, we can blame it on the military industrial congressional complex. We can blame it on the rigged two-party system and all of that is true. But we also have to say that we have to do more ourselves as citizens to push the issues that we care deeply about and make those people in Congress at least feel our wrath. <laughs> yes, I, I agree for sure. Um, no doubt. Let's um let's definitely segue into the book itself. And um my audience is pretty up to par as far as um the whole NATO question and that is concerned. What the audience is lacking is um the terminology and some of these key events that kind of led to where we are now. Um the first one being the Orange Revolution. Um and reading the book, honestly, I didn't even know much about the emphasis on civil war that was in um, this particular book, War in Ukraine, which I thought was really interesting. But can you kind of um, summarize what that was about, the Orange Revolution, that I think happened back in 04? Uh, yeah, the Orange Revolution is one of these, quote, colored revolutions that the U.S. has been very involved in promoting in uh, places all over the world, and particularly in, in Eastern Europe, when it was trying to uh, pull those countries more to the West. And um, so it would do things like fund civil society groups, uh, promote opposition to the government, uh, and try to uh, build up what we, uh, what our government would call liberal democracies uh, in these countries, whether it's in Georgia or in um, uh, the uh, what was uh, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, um, in in Ukraine, and uh, many of them were quote successful in overthrowing dictatorial governments, repressive governments. Uh, but some of these other color revolutions that have been happening around the world have also overthrown governments that are simply uh, not pro-U.S. And uh, so that's what we see happening and uh, what happened with the Orange Revolution. It was really a precursor to the uh, the uprising that happened then later in 2014. And that uprising you're referring to is Euromaidan? Yeah, that uprising in Euromaidan is something that the uh, 
pro-Ukrainian resistance would call the, an uprising of dignity uh, and uh, said it was a peaceful uprising against a corrupt government. The way we portray it in the book is, yes, it was a peaceful uprising against a corrupt government, but that government was democratically elected, and that peaceful re resolution uh, revolution was taken over by forces that were violent, uh, paramilitary, neo-Nazi, ultra-nationalists. Uh, they were a small percentage of the people who were protesting, but they were the ones who had the weapons. They were the ones who invaded armories and got weapons. They were the ones who set buildings on fire. Uh, and in the meantime, while the peaceful protesters were working with the government uh, of Viktor Yanukovych, who was the head at that time, and outside governments at that point, it was France and Germany and Poland, uh, and they came up with a, an idea to bring forward the uh, elections to be uh, six months away. Uh, and the armed group said, no, we're not going to agree with that. And instead overthrew the government by physically invading the spaces like the people on January 6th here in this country tried to do, but were unsuccessful. And Viktor Yanukovych was forced to flee the country. Uh, and a, um, a rump government was put in power that even uh, U.S.-run polls said that the uh, majority of people did not consider it legitimate, did not consider it constitutional until there were new elections were, that were held. And then they had turned a pro-Russian government into a pro-Western government. And it's not only that this was helped by these um, violent paramilitary groups, but also with the help of the United States. And as we outline in the book, the role of mm -hmm. the Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Newland. Uh, we also outline in the book how the U.S. had been giving $5 billion up until that time to create civil society. You know, it's funny in this country, we say, oh, the Russians created these bots and they influenced uh, our elections, Russiagate, Russiagate, which turned out to be really nothing. Uh, but in the case of Ukraine, it was literally billions of dollars that were poured into that country to turn it against Russia. So you have the outside interference, particularly the interference of the United States, as well as these uh, ultra-nationalist groups that turned a popular uprising into a coup. Yes, and you actually got into something that I was going to ask you a question about. That was probably one of the more shocking elements of reading the book is um, I was skeptical, even with the analysts that had come onto the show before with Jack Rasmus, he was on, uh, Matthew Witt came on. I talked with Cynthia McKinney um, off um, camera. I've talked with some other people, Paul Craig Roberts, and um, someone else came on the forum. Jeffrey Summers also came on the forum. And I kind of doubted this influence, this neo-Nazi influence. And I thought, I was like, is this just um, some of the leftist elements or some of the people that I follow? Uh, are they just sticking to the Azov Battalion as like the one thing? And I read this book. And I was like, wow, that's actually a presence, um, a neo-Nazi presence in Ukraine that has some influence. Like, I was shocked to read that. Yeah, you know, as we say in the book, they had very little power when it came to politics in the uh, elections that uh, they got a very small percentage of the vote. 
but they had an outside influence when it came to uh, violence because they have uh, traditionally been uh, people who will take up arms, who right after 2014 not only were involved in the uh, violent aspects of the overthrow of that government, uh, but then refused to abide by the agreement of the Minsk Accords a year later when there was supposed to be a, an effort to end the fighting. And those same groups were the ones that went to the region of Donbass uh, to say, no, we're not going to abide by this Minsk agreements. We're going to keep fighting. And so uh, they also are the ones who threatened presidents, including uh, Zelensky himself, who ran and won overwhelmingly as a peace candidate that he was going to make peace in the Donbass region. Uh, but every time he tried to do that, he would be stopped by these right-wing groups. And his life was uh, threatened on a regular basis, saying, if you meet with the leaders of the breakaway republics like you're supposed to do, according to the Minsk Accords, uh, you will be hanging from a tree. So they did allow those agreements to go forward. So even though they're a small percentage of the population, they have had an outsized influence. And that's something that the Corbin media definitely sidesteps. Um, because from what I read, he had 70% support, popular support, and that dropped from 70 to 17%. And um, I did not realize he was so popular at the time when he got elected. And according to the book, he won every province except the Lviv area. And yeah, yeah and, and that's that's something that I was curious about because it sounded like there was more um, direction towards the peace talks when he was in initially. And um, based on reading the book, it makes sense that um, how that sort of dissolved um, because you have, and the U.S. also is to blame when it comes to that too because it didn't seem like that the U.S. had any interest in um, appeasing the process. Yeah, well, there are two issues that came out after the book was written that confirm the analysis. Uh, and there are two separate interviews that were done with the heads of state of Germany and France at that time, with Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande, who said in these two separate interviews that the uh, Minsk agreements were an opportunity to uh, to weaponize Ukraine to prepare them for a fight with Russia uh, or to prepare them to taking back the Donbass by force. And when you say uh, the U.S. was involved, well, immediately after the agreement was signed, lo and behold, the U.S. started sending weapons to Ukraine. And that was first under Obama when there was a stipulation they could only be defensive weapons. And then under Trump, when it was no hold bars, you could send offensive weapons as well. So instead of really seeing those agreements as a way to stop the fighting and come to an end to that civil war, uh, the Europeans did not take it seriously. The U.S. did not take it seriously. And so that Minsk agreement was never implemented. And I truly believe that if it had been, we would not see Russia invade Ukraine like it did uh, in, in uh, last year. Yes. And um, and again, to emphasize just reading and I just I'll call myself an impartial um, observer. When I read this book, 
I don't I don't understand sort of like the, the attacks against you, like because I've been following um, social media for a while. And um, I told my audience, I never I would never post on Twitter. You would never see a tweet from Kiko. Um, I'm there. I'm looking at stuff, but I'm never going to tweet. Unless it's just like a video posting from Kiko's Ridiculous Forum, because it is just a cesspool of toxicity um, on there. And I don't understand the, the labels against people who are simply acknowledging that they're just fault on every side that you can think of. But somehow that's become like a talking point to if you're not all in with Ukraine, that means that you're like for Russia. Like I just. I don't know how to spend words like that because reading this book, I never got the impression that you were pro-Russia anything or whatever these people are calling you on social media. Well, it's not just on social media, too. I've been followed around on the book tour and harassed and uh, protesters, and I've had some of my appearances canceled. And I say so clearly, not only am I totally opposed to the Russian invasion on all levels. But if I lived in Russia, I'm pretty sure I would be in prison for protesting. And I'm no fan of Putin. I think what he uh, he's an authoritarian leader. I think um, this invasion is just brutal and immoral and illegal. And uh, so I don't uh, understand why I am uh, uh, followed around and called a Putin apologist. But I think you hit it on the head when you say if you're not all in, and that means if you're not all in for continuing to send a flow of weapons and even up that flow of weapons, uh, and if you're not all in in the believing the myth that Ukraine can win on the battlefield when we don't even know what winning means. Does winning mean going back to 2014? Does winning mean going back to uh, the way things were a year ago? Uh, what does that mean about Crimea? So uh, if you uh, now the position of many people inside Ukraine is to say, we want to take back everything, including Crimea. And if you have doubts that that's possible, like we saw in the latest Pentagon leaks, where it says that this is a stalemate. Uh, if you merely even quote what the Pentagon itself is saying internally, uh, then you are uh, not all in, and then you are considered a Putin apologist. So the um, the labels are are silly. Uh, they're meaningless. And they're also dangerous because they stop people from really thinking about what is happening, how many people are being killed every day, and where is this leading? If you don't have a clear picture that this is going to lead to a third world war or even a nuclear confrontation, then you're not being real about how dangerous this situation is. Absolutely. And um, I think the timing of your publication was was perfect in the sense that um, I felt like just for the purposes of the information that we were trying to push out that um, we needed an updated version and having a book to actually reference was a great thing to have. And, and people need to get this book, War in Ukraine, making sense of a senseless conflict for sure. Um, I have a couple more questions. One deals with, um, we talked about Zelensky some, but I know you probably followed the, the article that released yesterday from the New York Times, how Xi and Zelensky actually talked on the phone. Um, so this is a pretty big development, I think. And um, 
but I want to ask a question about Biden himself, um, because that seemed unclear in the book. There wasn't a lot of detail about the degree of his involvement back in 2014 uh, compared to now. Like, what what did Biden have in Ukraine of interest that that we may not know about? Because I didn't really get that out of the book reading it. Well, that's an interesting thing that you picked up on, and that's because we really don't know. And a lot of that information is information that you only find out many years after the fact when there are Freedom of Information Act requests, when there are whistleblowers that come out, when you know more information comes to the fore. I mean, we know uh, that Biden has been involved in Ukraine. It was so interesting in that leaked audio tape with Victoria Nuland, the Assistant Secretary of State, when she said, we got to get the okay for what the machinations were, who they were picking for uh, the next head of state in Ukraine going to be on the inside, who is on the outside. She said we had to get that uh, okay from the higher up. And the higher up was not Obama. The higher up at that point was Biden, who was vice president. So he was already deeply involved in giving the okay around uh, the uh, picking of the next leader after Yanukovych was overthrown. Uh, and that we only know because of this leaked audio tape. So there is so much more that we will find out one day about U.S. involvement, for example, in that Maidan coup. Uh, and so much more we'll learn about whether it's Hunter Biden or, or uh, 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 President Biden himself. But we don't know a lot now. It's a lot of speculation. So we didn't want to put that into the book. But I do think that you know, when you look at, at Biden's past history, for example, uh, the way he looked at Iraq when he was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about the war uh, being a positive thing and, and talked about breaking up Iraq into three different uh, territories, uh, the Sunni, the Shia, the Kurds, uh, like the U.S. had some uh, right to go into another country and break it into pieces. Um, I think you see uh, Biden right now thinking that the U.S. has the right uh, to go in and decide what will be the future of the Donbass, what will be the future of Crimea, um, trying to uh, help orchestrate what Ukraine will look like. And this is all done under the the, the name of um, supporting Ukraine's sovereignty. And I think Ukraine's sovereignty is important, and that's why we should condemn the Russian invasion. But let's not forget that there are parts of Ukraine that are ethnically Russian, that have been like Crimea, part of Russia for 200 years. Uh, there have been votes where uh, they have voted back at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991 when Ukraine declared itself independent. There was a vote in Crimea in which the overwhelming majority of people said they didn't want to be part of Crimea. So we have to recognize not only that history, but the fact that you know there are uh, people in Ukraine in that Western region, in the Donbass and Crimea, who have closer ties to Russia than they have to the West. Absolutely. And I think Jeffrey Summers in particular did such a good job. Um, I think he said he had been in Ukraine several times and he spent years over in Ukraine. And um, so having that geographical navigation for my audience, I think, was important because I, there's just so many complexities within this conflict right now 
And the book does a great job of highlighting this. And I think that's the reason why the propaganda campaign has been so effective is not only just the ignorance when it comes to geographical knowledge, but also just the history leading up and just all these internal conflicts, um, the, the geography of Ukraine itself, um, the relationship between Ukraine and Russia, the former Soviet Union, it was one of the Soviet republics. And so uh, it, I think that's a lot for the average person here to sort of, sort of compartmentalize and contextualize. Well, I think there are two very key things that are simpler to understand that it's important for uh, your viewers to understand. One is there is a stalemate. This is not a winnable war without somebody resorting to something like foreign troops coming in or nuclear weapons. And God forbid we should go that direction uh, and uh, and really relying on sources like this Pentagon uh, leaked papers or the Rand Corporation, a think tank that is funded by the Pentagon, or even what the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said back in November, it looks like there won't be victories on the battlefield. So to keep in mind, it's not a war that can be won on the battlefield. That's one. The second one is uh, well, if you can't win it on the battlefield, then what's the point of prolonging this war? Doesn't that just mean more and more people getting killed and more possibility of it becoming a broader war? And if you want to avoid that, isn't it time to call for the peace talks? Now, you brought up the issue of China, and that's really important. That didn't happen when we wrote the book. But when we wrote the book, we did talk about the efforts at mediation that happened right after the invasion, where Turkey, uh, the uh, President Erdogan took the lead, and where there was a 15-point plan between Russia and Ukraine until the West, particularly the US and the UK came in and said, no, we don't want you to negotiate. Um, we will support you in your military victory. And that was reinforced, we found out since the book, uh, by the person who was the head of uh, the prime minister of Israel at that time, Neftali Bennett, who said he was trying to negotiate a ceasefire and both sides were very close to it until the West blocked it. So that's two strikes. The third one is China. The China peace proposal, you mentioned that Xi and Zelensky both had a chance to uh, talk to each other recently and that it was a favorable conversation, just like the favorable conversation that happened when uh, President Xi from China went to talk to Putin in Moscow. So here you have the two parties that are don't want to um, go against China because China is their largest trading partner and they have a lot of uh, 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 China has a lot of leverage. Uh, and so uh, China can play a very positive role, but immediately the U.S. went in and said, no, 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 no. Uh, a ceasefire, that would be unacceptable. Even went so far, so far as to say, if it was offered by Russia, Ukraine should not accept it because that would be uh, recognizing the gains, the territorial gains that Russia had made, which is ridiculous because all it means is stop the fighting and let's start the talking. Uh, the U.S. has said that... Uh, uh, that uh, they don't think uh, China could be a a, a, a real uh, mediator because China is too close to Russia. And yet here you have Zelensky anxious to talk to uh, Xi and, and very positive in his affirmations. 
Uh, and there are other countries um, like the president of Brazil, Lula, who is going around the world trying to build a peace club of nations so that there could be this pressure coming from many sides. And uh, we need, uh, I get back to my uh, main contention, which is we need to push the U.S. That's where the holdup is, <laughs> especially you see that now in this China issue, when you have uh, both Russia and Ukraine and other world leaders looking favorably and say, let's move forward on this Chinese proposal. Let's see where it leads. Um, the U.S. has to be pushed to say, yes, let's, you know, I don't like number 1357 of China, but I like 2468. So let's start with those. Uh, or to have the U.S. start talking directly to Russia, because there's so many things that the U.S. and Russia have to talk about as well, like the bases that the U.S. has so close to Russia's border in Poland and Ru Romania, um, the five countries that the U.S. has nuclear weapons in in Europe, uh, the treaties for nu around nuclear issues and arms reduction that the U.S. and then most recently, the last one, the New START Treaty that Russia has pulled back on. So there's all kinds of things that need to be discussed, uh, but we have to put the pressure on our government to start negotiations. And one final question I had that sort of ties into everything we've talked about, um, and the book acknowledges that it, this is a proxy war, but not only that, um, Jack Rasmus, when he talked about as an economist, I think that that's a, a point that's also um, crucial into this whole mix especially with the talks of de-dollarization, um, the BRICS alliance, the BRICS coalition. And so that raises the question, what effect have the sanctions had on Ukraine, Russia, and the rest of Europe? Because I've gotten conflicting opinions from people. I just want to get your take on that. Well, I find it fascinating how the whole world is changing right now. Uh, you see the sanctions against Russia have not yet really had the uh, uh, kind of impact that the West uh, hoped it would have on the Russian economy, but it has had tremendous impact on not only the European economy, where the price of energy has soared, where the price of food has soared, but also on the global economy, and particularly in the global South. That's why there's so much of a call in the global South to end this war. Um, but when you talk about things like the BRICS and uh, what we see right now is the U.S. has overplayed its hand when it comes to economic sanctions. And when they're putting these sanctions on Russia that are hurting their own allies in Europe, uh, when they're putting sanctions on so many countries, there is now a pushback and countries saying, hey, wait a minute. I love what um, the president of Brazil said. He said, I wake up every day and I why do we have to do all our trade in dollars? Well, they don't have to. And so there's starting to really be a new movement to have trade in local currencies, uh, the, to have trade that goes around the dollar, that, uh, uh, the, for China to have trade in its foreign currency, uh, for um, the BRICS countries to have a bank that rivals the World Bank in terms of being able to make loans to countries around the world. Uh, you even have in Latin America countries like Argentina and Brazil that just said we're going to use our own common currency and perhaps that current common currency uh, will spread one day throughout the continent. So you see major, major shifts that are happening where uh, the dollar which once reigned almighty is not going to reign almighty anymore. 
And um, it might take a while. It might, some people say it will only take five years. Some say 10 years, some say 20 years. I don't know how long it will take, but I know we're seeing a huge uh, change in the attitudes of major countries around the world and a huge desire to say, we don't want to be dictated to by U.S. government and we don't want to be dictated to by the almighty dollar. Well, Medea, I tell you, I think that um, the clarification is definitely there with um, sort of the Orange Revolution, especially the Euromaidan. Like those are the two events. And then you brought the domestic course, which is perfect because um, those are kind of my three question mark areas. Like I think I had everything else kind of understood, like the overall, um, but I didn't really grasp the internal struggles um, as much. And I think I've gotten a better job and a, a, a better grasp of that context now, um, thanks to you and everyone else that contributed to this series about the Russo-Ukrainian war um, that's going on right now. But I wanted to ask you, what would be the quickest way if an audience member or a listener um, had a question for you or just if they wanted to follow you, what would be the quickest way for them to do that? Well, it would be on uh, on things like Twitter and Facebook. It's Medea Benjamin, and I'm easy to find online. I also write a lot from a number of different sites, such as Common Dreams. You can find my articles there or in Counterpunch or in Antiwar or in The Progressive. Uh, and I would also encourage people to go to our website, codepink.org, and look at what Code Pink is doing. And one final one is a coalition that we've created called Peace in Ukraine. And the website is just peaceinukraine.org. And it's a coalition that includes groups like Veterans for Peace, Code Pink, World Beyond War, some of the uh, local peace action groups. And um, we have great resources there. We have meetings that people can join. We have suggestions on how to get involved. Uh, simple things that people can do, like go to your farmer's market and hand out these flyers or put a sign saying, let's talk about Ukraine and just start the conversation going. Uh, ways that you could approach your Congress people. So uh, those are some places to get information. Well, again, keep us free thinkers form to you. We want to say thank you again. Um, this was a memorable episode 47. Um, it's going to be great. I'm going to listen to it. And um, it'll probably publish relatively soon um, because um, I've been getting the episodes out pretty quickly. But again, I can't thank you enough um, for joining the show. And I know my audience will appreciate your expertise and just like your knowledge. And um, a lot of my audience is probably already familiar with you over the years with Code Pink and all your other endeavors. And I just want to say thank you. And to the rest of the beautiful people out there, have a great evening. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Norm Finkelstein about his newest book that came out. I have a lot of questions for Norm. <laughs> oh, that'll, that'll be a good one, boy. I have a lot of questions for him. <laughs> but um, we, we've had so many great guests on the forum, professors, activists, truth seekers, um, politicians, and just um, all the nine yards. And uh, we want to say thank you again for um, accepting the invitation. And we will talk soon, beautiful people. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me on.